really are pretty stupid. Um, during lambing season, these little cute lambs would come out helpless and completely dependent on their mother. Their survival depends on them staying close to her for protection and, and milk and warmth. But often it seems that the lambs would do everything that they could to get separated from their mother. Uh, they'd run away and go and try to find some other you uh, who would, of course, reject them. And before you knew it, they're completely lost and will quickly die if we didn't come along and rescue them and take them home, uh, warm them up, feed them, and then we'd have to look after them uh, forever from there. But even worse than that are the mothers who sometimes just abandon their babies. For some, some reason, they suddenly forget that they gave birth and wander off and leave their lambs. Without the farmer around to rescue uh, lost or abandoned lambs, they'd be completely helpless to save themselves uh, and would die. Well, the book of Judges is a story of a people who are a lot like sheep, helpless to save themselves. In fact, more than that, determined, it seems, to dive headlong into self-destruction. Uh, the story of Samson will be covering a lot of ground today, four chapters. The story of Samson is a story of God showing up to save a people who can't save themselves. In fact, more than that, he saves Israel when they don't even want to be saved. They've fallen so low that they've laid down and given up the fight against their enemies. And we see in Samson a judge who God raises up from birth. But Samson, as we'll see, is no hero of the faith. Samson is a proud, sinful and pretty faithless leader who is just like the people he leads. But God chooses to use this flawed anti-hero to show that his work of saving Israel from their enemies is all God. It's all grace from beginning to end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, story of Samson, uh, this, uh, this weird and wonderful story that's uh, difficult at times to understand. We pray that you would speak to us and give us wisdom and discernment to work out what it says and what it means for us today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our first point, I've got three points today. Our first point is saving Israel from themselves. It's been a while since we've looked at the book of Judges, so I just want to give a bit of context by looking at the big picture of the book. You may remember that the book up to this point has been a series of cycles, hasn't it? The cycles start off with Israel singing since they might sing, but they sin as well. Israel sinning. Uh, uh, God responds by handing them over to an enemy. They then cry out to God. God sends a judge to save them. Uh, and then the cycle continues. Everything would be hunky-dory for a while while the judge is still alive, but then the judge would die and Israel would abandon God again. Uh, and as I said, the cycle would repeat itself. Only that's not the whole story because it wasn't just like a video endlessly looping back to the same place. The story of Judges is a downward spiral. 
like water going down the gurgler in a bath when you let it out. Israel got progressively worse. And Samson is the end of the line of the judges. He's the last judge in the book. He's also the one who gets the most airtime. And by the time we get to Samson, the judges have become no better than the people that they're leading. It's as if Israel gets the judge that they deserve. Perhaps the most telling indicator of how low Israel has fallen by this point is that one crucial part of the cycle is now absent. Remember we said uh, that Israel sins, they get uh, handed over to an enemy, they then cry out to God, and then God sends them a judge. But with, with Samson, the crying out to God bit is absent. Israel don't even ask God to save them. Israel is silent. In chapter 13, verse 1, we are told that Israel was in the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's a mighty long time to silently accept being in bondage to the Philistines. Israel had sunk so low that they didn't even realise their need to be rescued. In fact, more than that, Israel are so accepting of the status quo of the Philistines ruling over them that they end up handing Samson over to the enemy to avoid trouble. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 11. They said do you, to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? As if the Philistine ruling us is the most normal thing in the world. Israel has accepted it as normal to be defeated by her enemies. But God rescues Israel anyway. In fact, he does it in a way that shows that it's his initiative from first to last. All the other judges were grown men or women called by God, but Samson is different. He is chosen from before he was born. Uh, we haven't got time to look at the story in detail, but we'll, we'll land on the story in various places. Let's pick it up in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. And that son would be Samson. Notice how God didn't just choose an ordinary birth. He performed an added miracle of opening the womb of a barren woman. And it all underlines the message that God showed up to do every part of saving Israel from the Philistines, despite the fact that they didn't even want to be saved themselves. Perhaps as you read this birth story, it reminds you of another, another birth, one that would happen many hundreds of years later. Another miraculous birth, another angel announcing to another woman that a special baby would come and who would save his people. It's no accident that Samson is a kind of shadow of a greater judge, a saviour who would save in a much greater way but more of that later. 
Well, the angel goes on to tell Manoah's wife more about this baby, 13 verse 4. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you don't eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because this boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. A Nazarite is someone who decides to make a special vow to God and for a period of time they promise not to cut their hair or to drink any alcohol or even eat grapes and they would have no contact with any dead body. All those things would make them unclean. So this boy was to be a Nazarite. But unlike a normal Nazarite, he didn't have any say in the matter. This was all God's decision. And unlike a normal Nazarite who would only be uh, bound by this oath for a short time, this boy would be one for his whole life, starting from the womb. So this was going to be a judge like no one else before him, set apart, by a holy, set apart to be holy by God to save Israel from the Philistines. But notice verse 5, there's a hint that it's not going to be a complete victory. It seems there is more of the story to come. He will only begin to save Israel from the Philistines. Well, as the story unfolds, it becomes obvious that Samson really was different to the other judges, but not in a good way. He was worse than anyone who came before him. He had no regard for the calling that we've just seen. He, had, he was ruled by hormones rather than by God. He was motivated by revenge rather than justice. In fact, he really was a reflection of the people he was supposed to lead. I don't know if you remember when Donald Trump was elected president of the U.S., uh, we were just about to head back to Taiwan when we heard the news that he was elected president. I remember how I was looking forward to going back to a place where the craziness of US politics didn't dominate the news day by day. Like me, many commentators uh, here and in the US were shaking their heads and lamenting that America was getting the president that they deserved. He was a reflection of the sad state of US politics. And our second point is in Samson, Israel really got the kind of judge that they deserved. Israel had shown consistently through judges that they were incapable of being faithful to God. In the cycle of the judges, it was only during the lifetime of the judges themselves that Israel was mostly faithful to God uh, and kind of kept in check by, uh, and, and walking with God. But as soon as the judge died, as surely as night follows day, Israel was back to their natural state, ignoring God, following idols and false gods and generally sinning in whatever way they could. There's a very significant phrase that comes up twice in the chapters that come after our story of Samson. And this phrase puts in a nutshell the state that Israel was in. 
We see it in, in chapter 17 and then chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. That's, just, that's more than just a statement of the fact that they were ruled by judges and not kings. It was saying that Israel's true rightful king, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the ruler of the universe, he wasn't treated as their king at all. Instead, the people were their own kings and queens. They were a law unto themselves, doing what was right in their own eyes. And so this lawless people end up with a lawless judge in Samson. It's very significant that Samson is described in acting in exactly the same way as Israel. Two short verses in chapter 14 bring this out. Have a look. Uh, Samson, the context is that Samson has asked his parents to get a wife for him. Uh, his parents don't like um, they're horrified the fact that he asked for a wife from the Philistines, a Philistine woman, their enemy. But this is what he tells his parents, 14 verse 3. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. You see that same phrase? She is right in my eyes. And again, just to drive the point home, a few verses later, Samson gets to meet the woman, verse 7. Then he went down and talked to the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Exactly the same wording as the phrase used to describe Israel. And the point is to show that Samson, just like Israel, was his own king. That he was a law unto himself. That he did what he wanted. He was the judge that Israel deserved. We haven't got time to go into all the details of the sordid story of Samson. But let's just do a quick summary we saw in chapter 13 that Samson will be born and set apart as a Nazarite. Then all the angel's words to Manoah and his wife come true. The young man grows up. Uh, and what's interesting is that from these early days, Samson had God's blessing and his spirit with him. Chapter 12, verse 24, And the man, young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Normally we expect that when someone has God's spirit that they're at least a they act at least a little bit like God wants them to act. Not with Samson. As we saw a moment ago, he goes and finds a wife from the Philistines, a major breaking of faith uh, with God's covenant, which told Israel never to marry a foreigner outside of Israel. The nation of Philistia was a nation sitting right on uh, Israel's doorstep and one that God warned would lead them astray. And yet there's a curious little comment on what Samson did when he married a Philistine. Chapter 14, verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Somehow we've got to put two things together. One, what Samson did in marrying this woman was sinful and faithless, blatantly thumbing his nose at God's commands. But then at the same time, what he did was from God. 
Somehow we've got to put those together. Well, then the story, uh, this already weird story, takes a weird diversion. Samson goes to a place called Timnah, which is a town in Israel, where he sees his future wife and is walking through a vineyard. He's greeted by a roaring lion. Well, Samson goes and kills the lion, as you do, tears him apart, well, as Samson does anyway, because we are told, again, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. God gives him supernatural strength. Later on, there's a little postscript to this lion story that doesn't seem to have relevance to anything much at all. Samson goes back to the dead lion and sees bees with honey in it. He scoops out some of the honey from the lion. He eats it and he gives some to his parents to eat as well. Okay, so what? Well, the point of the story goes back to the beginning of the Samson story. Remember that he was a Nazarite. Remember that he was set apart from God. Remember that he couldn't do anything that would make him unclean. What do you think eating from a dead carcass of a lion does to him? It makes him unclean. Then jumping to the end of the story, you probably know, well, we had it read to us, how it ends with Samson allowing his hair to be shaved off. A Nazarite was never to let a shaver go near their head. Again, a, a, a blatant breaking of the Nazarite vow. Put together, when the Nazarite report card comes in, Samson gets a massive fail. He was unfaithful with pretty much everything God told him not to do. Well, Samson ends up marrying the Philistine woman and the lion and the honey make another appearance. Samson is given 30 Philistine lads as his groomsmen. They had big bridal parties in those days. Uh, and he decides to give them a riddle. Out of the eater comes something to eat. Out of the strong comes something sweet. Well, if you didn't know about Samson and the lion, you'd think, well, what on earth does that mean? And the Philistines can't guess it either. Samson uh, uh, gives them a challenge. If they guess the riddle uh, in 10 days, then Samson will give them 30 new suits. But if they can't guess it, they would have to uh, expand Samson's wardrobe and he would get 30 new suits. Well, after a few days, the Philistines get sick of this game and they lean on Samson's wife. Tell us what it means, they say, or we'll burn you and your father. They took it pretty seriously. Samson's wife plays the if you really love me card and gets Samson to tell her the secret of the riddle. She then tells our 30 lads the answer. Samson is incensed when the Philistine lads tell Samson what it means and he has to give them 30 pieces of clothing. Uh, but he's so angry about it that he responds by randomly killing 30 other Philistines. Once again, we're told in chapter 14, verse 19, as he does that, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon, that's the capital of Philistia, and struck down 30 men of the town. 
We haven't got time to look at verse, as chapter 15, but we can summarise it by saying that this cycle of tit for tat between Samson and the Philistines continues. The Philistines do end up killing Samson's wife and the father, and he responds by adding another bizarre layer to a story already overflowing with bizarreness. He picks up the jawbone of a donkey and proceeds to kill a thousand of them. And once again, you guessed it, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord gives him strength to do it. Now we might be tempted to think that Samson was acting righteously and faithfully in all this. After all, we've been told that it was God's doing marrying a Philistine. Uh, it was God's doing picking a fight with the Philistines. As well as that, God's Spirit keeps strengthening Samson, right? Right? But for Samson, God didn't come into the picture. He was more than happy to cavort with a Philistine woman. He wasn't motivated by a righteous desire to defeat Israel's enemies. He was motivated by revenge, pure and simple. Unlike the other judges, Samson doesn't even seek God or pray to him except to complain to him that he'll die of thirst. And then at the very end of the book, when he wants revenge one last time. In Samson, there's not a skerrick of godliness or concern for God's glory. Well, we see Samson go from bad to worse. In chapter 16, he visits a prostitute in Gaza, as we had read out to us. Um, then, then his eyes wander to another Philistine woman, Delilah, and she proves to be his undoing. Uh, let's just quickly recap. Um, Samson... Uh, ends up self-destructing with Delilah, but God uses even Samson's folly to bring out the most unlikely victory from the jaws of defeat. And that's our third point. As we heard in our reading, Delilah hounds Samson to tell her the secret of his strength. Three times he deceives her, tie me with fresh bowstrings, bind me with new ropes, weave my hair into seven knots and put a... Um, put a, a thing in it to fasten it with a pin. We might say at this point, Samson at least has the nous to realise that if he deceives Delilah, he's going to get away with it. He'll still have his strength because his hair is still there. But the fourth time, Samson decides to do the equivalent to running full speed into a loaded bus. He willingly dives into self-destruction. He tells Delilah the truth, 1617. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. He knows exactly what's going to happen. His strength will disappear because God will leave him. And he knows the Philistines are waiting to catch him because he's seen that three times before. The sheer stupidity and blindness is unbelievably spectacular. Whether Samson was blinded by arrogance, thinking that God would save him anyway, just like he had every other time, or blinded by love or lust for Delilah, we're not sure. But Samson is a great anti-model for us, isn't he? Because sin can blind us as well. We can be deceived into thinking that we are doing the right thing 
when we are doing what is right in our own eyes. We can be blinded by arrogance, thinking that God will bless me just like he always has. Even if I sleep with my girlfriend, even if I cheat my boss at work, or even if I deceive my parents about what I'm really doing Saturday night. So Samson lets himself be shaved. He wakes up to the familiar warning that the Philistines are here to capture him. But Samson shows how deep the delusion and blindness are. Verse 20. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Despite just having told Delilah that his strength would leave him, somehow he deluded himself that he would be okay. But he is captured by his enemies. They gouge out his eyes. They set him to work grinding grain. The Philistines think that all their Christmases have come at once. They plan a great celebration at the temple of their god Dagon. They gloat over their victory. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. As all the leaders and bigwigs of the Philistines gather at this uh, temple, Samson is there too, paraded like a trophy to entertain them. But Samson has other plans. He prays for only the second time in the whole story. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Not a particularly godly prayer. He's still motivated by revenge rather than for God's glory. But still, God graciously hears Samson's prayer. He stretches out his hands and leans on the two pillars. He gives them a mighty shove and brings the temple down on himself and 3,000 Philistines. The result... So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. The Philistines in their arrogance boasted that their god Dagon gave them victory over their enemy. But God turned things around to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat. But we saw before that Samson was only going to begin to save Israel from their enemies he killed 3,000 of the leaders, neutralizing their power at that time. And Israel enjoyed peace for a time, but it didn't last. Israel would have to wait hundreds of years for a saviour who would really save Israel. And not only Israel, but the whole world. The Son of God was like Samson in his death. He did his greatest work in that death as he also stretched out his two hands to give his life on a cross for all humanity. Only he was different to Samson. 
Samson took many lives when he died. But Jesus saved countless lives by his death. And Samson's death points to Jesus' death in another way. God snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. He saved Israel through his personal defeat. But Jesus did that so much more wonderfully. wonderfully. His enemies mocked. Satan gloated as the Son of God was trapped by the evil schemes of the leaders of Israel. But in his death, Jesus crushed Satan. He killed death. He laughs at his enemies. And he brings us life and freedom in a way that Samson never could. Now I'm going to bring the band up now and we'll have our response song. But I'm going then to come back and talk briefly about what this whole story means to us. What do we do with it? Because it's been such a long story that we haven't had time to try to apply it as we go. And we shouldn't leave here today just hearing this rollicking story and thinking, so what? Fun story, but what do I do with it? Um, So let's sing with the band, have a break, uh, and then we'll come back uh, for the homeward run. Well, so what? what? What do we do with this weird and wonderful story? I want to briefly touch on two areas that we can apply the Samson story. First, firstly, what it says about human beings. Um, Samson and Israel are an anti-model for the life of a believer. Uh, we, we saw that they do what is right in their own eyes. They are deceived and blinded by their own sin. Israel learns to live comfortably with the enemy. Samson literally gets into bed with the enemy. Friends, I want to suggest that we are facing a cultural climate where being a faithful Christian is making us enemies with the world. There's no avoiding it. Uh, I don't know if you saw in the news recently the uh, story of the Essendon AFL football club uh, CEO, uh, Andrew Thorburn, who was, a, who, who was appointed CEO and kept the job for all of 24 hours uh, before he was forced to resign because it was revealed that he was also chairman of City on a Hill Church in Melbourne. Essendon said that the church's beliefs that homosexuality and abortion are wrong made it unacceptable for Thorburn to take on his position with Essendon without going into the politics of it. Um, The fact is that this wasn't some wacky cult with outlandish beliefs. Sitting on a hill was condemned for holding orthodox beliefs, beliefs that Sweck would happily sign off on, that every Bible-believing church would happily sign off on. My point is this. As Christians, we increasingly are faced with making a choice. We can only choose harmony and peace with the world if we denounce our core beliefs that are at the heart of the gospel and the Bible's message. We can choose to get into bed with the enemy or to remain faithful to the truth. 
Now, hear me right, please. I'm not saying that we hate the world. We are to love the world in that we are to love the people in the world. We are to engage with the world. We are to lay down our lives for the world as Jesus did. But we cannot sell out our beliefs so that we can be accepted by the world. Secondly, and this is the most important take-home from the Samson story, what we learn about God. God showed that he is endlessly gracious to a people who didn't want his kindness. He saved the people who didn't want saving. But we are just like Israel. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still like Israel, who didn't want to be saved, God saved us, who are no more deserving than Samson or Israel. And he uses any and every means to show his kindness and mercy to us. He showed it to Samson. He used Samson despite himself. He heard Samson's prayer, even his self-centred, uh, vengeful prayer. And he surprisingly, wonderfully, amazingly chooses to save us and use us, sometimes despite ourselves, sometimes even through our sin and folly. He uses all things, all circumstances to work the good he has planned for us. As it says in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, how this story of Samson ultimately points towards you. It points towards the gospel. Uh, thank you, Father, that we have a saviour who is so much better than Samson in Jesus uh, a saviour who, unlike Samson, was faithful to you. A saviour that, unlike Samson, died uh, so that countless people could live and not die. And Father, we thank you for the wonderful news uh, that you graciously choose to not only save us, but to use us and to bring everything in our lives uh, together for your purposes. Uh, even despite ourselves, uh, you use even our sin, our weakness and our folly. And we pray that we might be encouraged by that news today. Amen.